What's up, y'all, and welcome to the Sports Medicine Broadcast, Care of the Active Wrist. We are live at the Memorial Hermann Sports Medicine Update with Dr. Candace Tunis. Um, I'm your host, Sean Reedy. Join our conversation at sportsmedicinebroadcast.com, Care for the ac- Active Wrist. Hi, Doc. So we just had an r- awesome com- or awesome presentation, awesome breakout Thank session. Thank you. Thank you very much. Awesome kind of conversation that we've been sitting here right. and probably honestly should have been recording. But um, so talk to us about the active wrist. So, I mean, you know, I think there's there's so much that can happen when you're an athlete, whether you're just working out or you're playing a sport as far as trauma to the wrist. Certainly there's, you know, a whole other bag of worms when it comes to tendonitis or just irritated injuries of the wrist. But, um, you know, there, sometimes there's this sentiment of, well, it's just a finger or something like that, but it is so important to recognize certain injuries and get them treated because, um, you know, if you, if you have the opportunity to catch a scaphoid fracture or a Jersey finger, you really can, you know, impact, uh, the outcome of some of these kids or some of these athletes, you know, lives when it comes to the function of their hand. So when you, when you're talking about that, the, the thoroughness of your evaluation that you mm-hmm. were just going through in your breakout session, I've been very lucky to work with some great hand physicians that like, they have a, a very thorough examination. I feel like that's probably a hand yeah. specialty that, that that's kind of a, a, but talk to us about a little to start with talk to us about your evaluation and I guess ways that as athletic trainers because I think that's one place that we we maybe fail not so much fail but are, 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 are lacking talk us to us about your evaluation a little bit well, I think that, you know, the hand is, is one of the areas that even like, you know, people who practice general orthopedics kind of sometimes go, like, I don't know that I really want to dive into that, you know, um, so it, it is a little bit of a, and certainly I've spent my whole, I mean, I did fellowship after orthopedics and I've just had an exclusively hand practice. So it's a little bit unfair to be like, I'm not expecting you to be able to examine a hand. I mean, I've been doing this all I do every day, you know, five days a week, seeing patients in clinics. So I'm not, by no means should there be any expectations that you're going to catch everything. I think it's a matter of understanding a couple of things. I mean, I think it all goes back to anatomy and this is what made me choose hand surgery in the first place is that the hand is a very much a form meets function. If you understand some of the anatomy, not necessarily all of the nitty gritty of it, but if you understand some of the anatomy, two flexor tendons to every finger, the extensor tendon attaches here, you can understand the injury and also understand how to assess the injury. So it all goes back to anatomy and it can just be a simple thing of opening up an anatomy textbook to kind of take a look, okay, well, what's there, you know, you know, based on, you know, where somebody may be hurting. And, and so, um, understanding the anatomy and form meets function certainly is a, is a good place to start. Um, and then also, you know, you, the more specific you can be when you're looking at a hand and a wrist and understanding that really the, the, the structural, pieces are very close to the skin surface. So rather than just sort of be like, well, it just kind of hurts, you know, here, you know, make a point with one finger. Well, it hurts right here. And then thinking, okay, well, what's there? And then letting that guide your exam. I mean, it's not like a hip, which is so deep or another area. I mean, you know, the hand is, is, is in a lot of ways and, um, easier in that sense, because everything's right next to the skin. Uh, and, uh, and then probably having just a few things 
kind of a few areas where you know as a trainer that you're going to see PIP stuff. You know you're going to see a finger joint sprain or dislocation or something like that. You know, you're teaching, you know, you're uh, taking care of kids who play football. You know you're going to have wrist trauma, uh, you know, jersey fingers. There's a few things that I think, like, if you can know how to look for those and always have those in the back of your mind, you'll catch them, you know. Um, and I don't think, I mean, I don't think it's a matter of that the trainers are are failing, you know, at all. I think um, I think you guys have an opportunity to to catch and treat a lot of this stuff, and then and and don't be too hard on yourself. Sometimes I don't know, you know, patient comes in, they just got their hands smashed between two helmets the night before. The whole dang thing hurts, and I don't necessarily know where where the problem is. I think in those situations, it's also important to follow up. I think that's probably the spot where maybe some more of these things get caught is, you know, not sure because everything hurts and everything's swollen. Well, make a point to have them back in your office in a week, you know, a week later to just reassess it. Let the dust settle, then look at it again. And if it's stone cold normal or full motion and no pain and no tenderness, then probably it's okay. You know, but then that will, you know, if it's still bothering them, then that's where you can kind of push them to maybe get a more thorough evaluation, x-rays or whatnot. That was one of those things that you talked about too there in your breakout session that was pretty, pretty um, cool to hear was due to the fact like, especially in athletic trainers that do outreach coverage or do something where they might not see their athlete, but once a week, or it might just be some random soccer team that comes in and they fall on the outstretched wrist or outstretched hand, wrist hurts, radial and ulnar sided pain. You're like, everything's everything hurts. Scaphoid uh, or snuff box. It could be scaphoid and TFCC. Oh my God. And a thumb and a thumb UCL. Exactly. (laughs) So you're dealing with those type of things. And I know you, you mentioned a way to kind of like talk about that with, with a parent, with a patient, Mm -hmm. Hey, this is, this is something that you might look for. And so can you kind of talk through that? Cause that, that happens and that happens every weekend probably here in houston every weekend i know with us in san antonio we we work i I work it with with the hospital that we're covering soccer tournaments we're covering that and you're running into that so how how can we I guess not so much evaluate that better, but educate them. Hey, these are the, the, the thoughts to look out for. I think it's all in a how you how you word it. So here's here would be two options of how you approach a kid that falls onto an outstretched hand and kind of hurts everywhere. You could say it's probably just a sprain. Don't worry about it. Work on you know rest it, splint it for a week, and then just work on getting your motion back. And don't worry about it go back in if there's a problem. So that's one way. And then I think the kid will typically go, oh, it's probably just a sprain. And the fact that it's kind of a nagging discomfort is no big deal. And then it gets ignored, ignored, ignored. Or you say, okay, you had a fall. There's an injury that we miss a lot of the time. I need you to really look at at your wrist. and And if in one to two weeks, you don't have full motion and no pain, you need to go get that looked at. You ha- on some level, you have to encourage patients and their families to be their own advocates and not sort of just be like, well, whatever. I mean, it's okay. Because this is the problem with scaphoids. They don't hurt that bad after a little bit. But they won't have full motion, and they'll have an, some, a lot of the time. They'll have some nagging discomfort. Or every time they try to get more active, it's just not quite right. I think we have to encourage people to be like, look, if things are lingering, that's the best way to 
to catch them. As if things are not normalizing and they're lingering and they're not right, encourage them to, then we need to really step up whatever we're doing for evaluation. I, I know that was one of the comments down there too, was the, hey, I'm sending my, I, I, I can't get my my athlete directly into you. Right. I, I have to send them through that PCP. Primary care, and, right, right, right. And I know you mentioned that, that not not saying that the PCP is is not doing their job, but they, they're trying to manage and not overload you and not overload. Exactly. And so um, what are the, the couple things there that you were talking about that, hey, look for these and if these these are probably emergent not so much emergent but we need to we need to not miss them yeah we need to not miss this yeah i think that um if if i could you know if we can catch a jersey finger early if we can catch a scaphoid before it becomes a non-union then i think we're we're winning in in those small little instances so i think that uh if you see a kid now, I mean, we're, we're going to take out the, the, the part of it of, okay, you fall and everything just hurts. Okay, so let's say you see a kid a day or two later and they've got some radial wrist pain and tenderness. Um, I think that's a scaphoid fracture too. You can prove that it's not a scaphoid fracture. And I think you need to tell them that and be like, look, this is important. This thing doesn't heal. If it, you know, it can take, you know, there, it'll get wrist arthritis in your 20s if you don't get this looked at. And, you know, make sure it's not that. I'd rather see... 50 normal wrists and catch two scaphoid fractures than the other side. Um, I think sometimes you think that you're doing enough by just, okay, initial wrist x-ray, normal, fine, go on your way. But I, I will bring those kids back in. I will make a, a – and so I think you can encourage them to go, go back to your primary care. And you're right. I mean, the primary care is not interested in sending every single wrist pain, tenderness, normal x-ray to me. But if somebody comes back in because it's not getting better, then they – Probably will. 99 times out of 100, if somebody's coming back in for something that's not getting better, that's when they'll up, up at a level. So, you know, f- having scaphoid always on your radar for radial wrist pain after some sort of trauma is one thing. Um, the jersey finger, you know, some sort of pulling type injury, um, you know, don't just assume that it's not moving well because it's swollen. I see that all the time. We're like, well, when the swelling goes down, it'll probably get better. Uh, they should be able to flex that. So it's about, you know, you know, isolating, knowing how to test for, you know, FDP function, stabilizing the whole finger except for the DIP and asking them to flex it. You know, that's when you'll catch those injuries. And again, I'd rather have you have an over-concern for it and send those and catch them early than, than, than not. The other thing is, is I always go back to the PIP because I think it's a really tough joint to assess. You'll see so many jammed fingers that are just that. They're jammed fingers, but sometimes they won't be. You know, so knowing that um, if you've got to reduce something, you have no way of knowing whether that's a fracture or just a simple dislocation, and the treatment can be so very different. So all of those need to get an x-ray. And I think that's less of an issue from the trainers. I think sometimes the coaches will be like, whatever, it's just a finger. It's in. It's working. Fine. You know, go play and whatever. I, I think in general, it's just about Again, encouraging the kids or, or, you know, checking back in or having them check back in with somebody to make sure that everything is looking okay. Uh, I liked your uh, your assessment that you talked about with your when you're talking about your flexor, flexor yeah. issues, jersey fingers, stuff like that, that um, you kind of walked through, the, which I know you kind of just mentioned, um, walked through that assessment and, and that obviously hitting both flexors. Right. Um, and that, that, that's a big thing. Um, but then going back to 
what you were just saying too about the the coach and mm-hmm. the athletic trainer that the x-ray and everything so yes. you were talking there about it, or in your talk you talked about reducing dislocations yeah mm-hmm. and you actually brought up a way obviously you everybody's heard of the just reduction pull on just it. pull on it right nice nice tension and it will reduce talk through your reduction technique and yeah. then I want, I, I'm going to have a secondary question off of that. Sure. So, I mean, I think that, um, certainly probably eight times out of 10, you will be fine with just pulling on it. I think it's nice if you can sort of elegantly reduce these, um, if possible. And this is where really trainers, you know, and coaches can do a big service because you're saving a kid, you know, from getting, because once they're in the ER, they have to be numbed up and you're, t- you're saving them from a visit like that. If you can reduce these on the field. Um, I think that the, the key in general, and this is a rule for even when I'm in the operating room, fixing a wrist fracture is you want to almost worsen de- the deformity before you correct it. So remember these injuries happen because the finger is being forced backward. It's forced into extension. So it tears the volar plates plus minus one of the collateral ligaments. And now this thing is sitting almost like sometimes a parallel finger. So it's like you've got the middle of phalanx that's sort of sitting parallel on top of the proximal phalanx. Well, th- the way that you can get it in, I think, nicely, first of all, you want to hyperextend. You want to kind of recreate the original injury first. And to make that easier, we'll take the flexor tendons out, right? Because if you're pulling into hyperextension, you're pulling on the flexor. So flex the wrist, flex the MPs to loosen those tendons bring the finger up into hyperextension and you literally want to perch that middle phalanx sticking at almost like a 90 degree angle on top of the proximal phalanx. So you've got it perched. If you can imagine the concavity of that joint surface on the middle phalanx, you want to sit that concavity right on that dorsal surface of the proximal phalanx head. And then you put just straight sort of pressure right there at the base of the uh, middle phalanx to kind of, I describe it as it feels like you're flipping it over the end. And I think that's the most sort of elegant, easiest way to do it. And by keeping that pressure and that, that contact between the middle phalanx and the proximal phalanx, I think you're reducing your chance of pulling something into the joint as you're reducing it. Cause that I think sometimes is a problem. You pull straight traction on it and well, then a collateral can kind of, kind of slide into the joint and then you won't have a perfect reduction so that's the reduction maneuver that i like for pips i I really like that with the the fact too that when you start thinking about it and you start thinking about your anatomy like we're talking about earlier is that traction Mm -hmm. and just reduce it i've had some i've had physicians tell me before you know the one thing i worry there is when you're dislocated posteriorly and you just traction to reduce you can tear that fleck that, yeah. that flexor fleck that, mm-hmm. or that fuller plate where you're where now you've caused a fracture by your reduction where it seems to me like that almost would be a an easier way to anatomically go about that and and with much less, less pulling and yeah. it's just yeah it is it's it's much it's much sort of easier to kind of again just sort of just gently and just think about it and try to visualize it you're just you really are you're just setting that little concave surface of the middle phalanx right there on top and it just flicks over um usually without a lot of a lot of fuss and and probably for those that have the that don't have the strong hand or or whatever that they're like i just very sweaty and slippery and slippery and they pull it out of their glove and their glove is sitting there and they're like 
you know, they've got that, the, the fingers that look like they've been in the pool for yeah. an hour and, you know, yeah. so. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Sometimes, you know, I'll also get asked uh, for open dislocations where you've got an open wound, mm-hmm. like, what am I supposed to do with that? Um, in general, that is, a, that's a fairly clean injury for the most part. I, I, what I told the breakout sessions was, if there's field in it, okay, probably don't drag all that grass and dirt like into the wound. But if it's a fairly clean injury, I think you can also try to reduce those mm-hmm. and just, you know, have the kids, you know, wash it with warm soapy water out of that. Most of them are probably not going to get infected, you know, but if they're grossly contaminated, probably you don't need to be pulling those back in. What about those that might have, or once, once you've done your evaluation, I think that's one of the things that we do a lot of times we see a finger dislocation and then we just start, Hey, Oh, Oh, Mm -hmm. reduce it to calm the kid down. They're freaking out, whatever. Um, some that I've seen, I've had in the past where you have like a spiral fracture dislocation with it. And so what do you, what's your recommendations there? How do we slow it up a little bit to be like, oh, we got something else going on here other than just that dislocation that's Well, and this is where it's hard because it's like, you know, when you when you have the dislocation, you feel that clunk when it goes back in, it's pretty satisfying. Again, mm-hmm. they need they all need an x-ray. I can't sort of harp on that enough. They all need an x-ray because you don't know if there's that associated fracture that's gonna contribute to them just drifting back out, even mm-hmm. despite splinting or just not being perfectly reduced. But then sometimes you're looking at it and you're like, the finger's crooked but it's really because of a fracture. Um, I don't really mind if you try to straighten it, but it's again, it's the idea, if something's so crooked that you're having to put, you know, do something to it, you need an x-ray because again, a lot of those fractures are inherently unstable. Those oblique fractures don't ever stay put. They all need a surgery and their surgery is much better Again, if it happens within a couple of weeks. So I think the general rule of thumb, no pun intended, is to, if you're pulling on anything, if you're trying to straighten anything, whether it's a dislocation that you feel go back in or it's a finger that's off to the side that you pull, you know, that you pull straight, get it x-rayed. Because it's, you know, again, a lot of those um, will end up needing an operation. You're going to catch something. You will absolutely catch something. You're always going to catch something. Yeah. So... Okay. So going back to, I guess we've kind of jumped into some different stuff that passing like your mallet fingers and stuff like that, where you were talking in your, in your talk about splinting. Yeah. And one thing that I know that when I first started dealing with, 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 with hand surgeons and then hand therapy is I was like, why are we sending them to hand therapy? Yeah. Because we're, I don't, I don't think they know what we do. I don't, this, this physician must not know what we do. We're athletic trainers. We don't need to send them to hand therapy, Mm -hmm. but you had a really good reason for you sending them to hand therapy. Right. So, you know, mallet fingers, and again, not all of them can be treated without you know, with, with a splint, it's the ones that are either soft tissue mallets or, you know, if there's a fracture, it's, you know, the joint still looks good. So there are those, you know, and that's honestly the vast majority, the vast majority can be treated in a splint. Um, and there are obviously a few ways of splinting. I think when they come to my office and this is something that again, when they come to the trainer, I mean, you guys can diagnose mallet fingers, I think pretty easily, 
you can go ahead and put them in a splint. And I talk, you know, we talked about a LumaFoam splint. Take some of that foam out because the foam's too thick. Build a little hyperextension into that splint. That first piece of tape should pull the finger up to the alumafoam, and that gets you into a little bit of hyperextension, which I think improves your correction. And then, you know, and then Lee always leave the PIP free. I think the pinky is the hardest to, to put a splint on because it's so short. So, you know, alumafoam splint is something you guys can absolutely do. A lot of you will have the stack splint. I just don't like them that much. I just don't think they fit that well. They never, well. Fit, they never fit right. They, Anybody. they just, in order to, and they just don't quite get the amount of extension, in my opinion. Um, so I don't love those. Those are the ones I use the least amount. Um, and they don't warm up in a hydroculator well, which no. some which some people might think, oh yeah, it's kind of like oh, a it's like orthoplast an or, or something. something. Like yeah, that. you can warm them up. They no, don't. No, no, no. They, they don't, don't shape. They well. don't mold. They don't mold well. So the reason, and I'm not sending them to therapy to actually do any therapy, but I do like what the therapists are able to make with the thermoplast. So they can build because there's a lot of. There's a lot of ways of making a, a, a mallet splint, and depending on the needs of the patient, you can kind of tailor it. So the, they'll see a, a one-time visit with a hand therapist so they can get a couple of these splints made. So like for athletes, a clamshell is really great because it's super conforming and the most protective of all of them. You're not relying as much on the tape you know, because um, you've got the support dorsal and volar. For people who have to type, you know, a dorsal-only splint is nice. Um, some people just fits better, especially if they're having skin irritation, to make it volar. You know, so you can really, and then they'll make them, um, and the plastic is super thin, and it's like a single piece of tape rather than all this other tape. So I feel like the, the therapy-made splints are the most, e they're the easiest to be compliant with. You know, because you gotta wear them 24/7, um, and uh, but they're not really doing actual therapy. But I have a lot of athletes that will play in those splints. I had a goalie who had a middle and a ring finger mallet finger on the same hand, and we put them in splints, and I let them play. I mean, you know, for the most part. Um, but uh, I do like the therapy made splints. I do think that that's helpful. And again, it's not for them to actually do therapy. It's just so they can make a splint and go on their way. I know when I first started sending my athletes to therapy for those, they were coming back with these amazing splints. And I mean, and that's one thing what, what, with now working with some, uh, some great hand therapists that mm -hmm. I've seen is they can really adapt it to football, to baseball, to whatever that their sport may be, mm -hmm. if they're going to be allowed to continue to compete. Uh, and obviously us not working with a lot of individuals in, in other settings, but even your your student athletes mm -hmm. that are students too that need to be able to type, hey, this is something that can work because, I mean, depending upon where you're at, you're going to have lots of issues. Right, because the key is things. that they just have to be compliant with them. That's why I tell them, I'm like, if you can be compliant and wear an alumifoam splint, 24 seven, fine. It's the cheapest option. Go ahead and do it. But it's hard sometimes. And so I, I would say, I don't care what it is as long as you're wearing it, you know? And then the, but the therapist will sometimes make their, here's your shower splint. Here's a splint. You're going to always get wet, you know, cause they have to even wear it in the shower. People forget to tell them that. Well, I'm going to take it off to wash my hands. Well then every time, <laughs> every time it droops, that it resets reset your time. the clock. Yeah, exactly. So, okay. Um, we kind of went into Jersey finger flexor, flexor yeah. stuff, obviously a pretty, a pre pretty, important thing to get into you guys to get into hand therapy or to get into hand surgeon potentially yes. to see what what the um why is that different from the 
from that extension? It's a great question. So the the issue comes back to again anatomy, which is where you can find your you know your your answer most of the time. Extensor tendons are they don't retract, so they'll tear, but that extensor tendon is just waiting to reattach. If you can just hold that joint up, it will reattach. That's why the splinting works. I mean, shoot, even if you have to or if you decide to pin a mallet finger. It's just to hold the joint straight so that it can heal. So you're not actually reattaching anything. The problem is that on the flexor surface, with the natural pull of the flexor tendons, once they're torn, they retract. So they pull, they suck back either to the PIP or into the palm. They have to be pulled out. They will not reattach on their own. And the longer they sit pulled back, the harder it is to pull it out and reattach it. So if you have a concern for something like a jersey finger, that's where you're calling whomever knows whomever to get him into a hand surgeon because no general orthopedic surgeon is going to typically want to do that. So you're like, okay, let me call, you know, let me get to whomever has the connections with the hand surgeon or whatever. And you make, and I guarantee you that, that no hand surgeon is going to fuss at you bending over backwards to call and get a patient in ASAP for something like that. They really want, they're going to, I would much rather have somebody, you know, banging on the door of my office to try to like get somebody in and, and making that extra phone call then and I tell my schedulers like these are the things if you hear this tendon tendon or whatever like you just need to add them on to my I don't care I'll overbick a kid and trauma any day and twice on Friday afternoon which is always when it happens <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's always when when the, when the bad stuff pops right. up right <laughs> so um let's move on to the ulnar collateral ligament yeah UCL stuff gamekeepers mm-hmm. skiers yes. thumbs uh Things like that, depending upon acute or or more. I, I see a lot of that stuff in the rodeo world. Yes, with the with bull ropes, things like that, where people. Oh sure, and they've probably been go, going on forever. And they get rolled mm-hmm. up, and they are truly having more of a gamekeepers rather mm-hmm. than the, than the UCL. Yeah, it's uh-huh. kind of a overuse trauma. But talk to us about that, and then also I definitely want to talk about the center lesion oh, with okay. regard to what you have to figure out, like imaging for that. Right. So um, I think that, uh, you know, skier's thumb or ulnar collateral ligament tear or insufficiency or however you want to put it, the the treatment for that has really changed even since I've been in practice. You know, it's we have become much more aggressive about fixing them. Uh, we've learned that it's not just a stenor lesion, but just displacement of the ligament. So when the ligament is torn, um, how close is it to where it belongs? Because that will affect its ability to reattach. So obviously the extreme example of that is a stenor lesion where the ligament is pulled off and now located on the wrong side of the of the adductor fascia. So you've got a layer of tissue between the ligament and its home on the bone. It will never heal right. This is my husband's friend from when they played rugby in college. Okay. So he had, you know, one of these injuries, um, and, and has lived forever with, uh, with, uh, UCL now essentially insufficiency or chronic tear. Um, the issue Picking up a bottle is right is or opening a bottle. So, a, yep. oops, Oh my gosh, here we go. Um, you know, opening a bottle. So in order to open a bottle normally and you pinch like this, you're relying on stability. You're relying on if I pinch against this, my thumb's not going to go, you know. And so my our, our friend has to open like this. He's got to do it all with his FPL. He can't, excuse me, he can't, you know, he can't open like that because you, he doesn't have a stable thumb. So uh, overall, um, if they're just sprained, so if you get an MRI on these, and I, I do think we get MRI on most of these, because if they're, if they're unstable compared to the other side and they're tender there and they're a little swollen, 
there's some injury to the UCLs. The question is how much. And so the MRI will change your management in this case. That's when I try to use MRIs. MRI going to change what I'm going to ultimately do. And I think it can in this case. So let's say you get an MRI, it just looks like it's stretched. Well, that probably can just be casted, you know, or if they're really going to listen to you, uh, you know, uh, you know, an exo sort of splint or whatever hand-based um, little thumb spike a splint um, for four to six weeks. Okay. But if it's torn, then I offer them surgery. And I'll tell you what, I would have mine repaired if I had it torn. Um, because I think that the, rec- I think that the outcomes are a little bit more predictable. I have seen uh, more than several that have been casted for a presumed sprain that have just never tightened to the degree that you want them to. Um, and now the newer anchors are such, and we can add, you know, I don't do internal brace in everybody, but uh, if I've got a football player who's mid-season, um, I'll repair it and augment it with the uh, some label tape, which is like a fiber, a, a little um, ribbon, essentially, that helps to support the ligament while it's healing. And so those, after the incisions heal, I let them play splinted, you know, within two to four weeks. So we can be so much more aggressive about their recovery. Similarly, when I was in training and fellowship, which is becoming increasingly in the past, but, you know, still was within the last decade, when we had to rebuild these ligaments, when you're talking about your insufficiencies, more of your true gamekeepers, we had to do bone tunnels and passing this big tendon weave and you're taking their whole tendon graft and it's a hard operation. You put a pin across it and they're all stiff and it's not that satisfying. A lot larger than not just that, that your small Yeah, yeah. And it's just a bigger operation that's technically challenging. Whenever you're talking about bone tunnels, like trying to recreate that original ligament by weaving something back and forth is just very hard to do. But now we have these anchors that essentially allow me to take a small section, just the exact size of where the ligament starts and ends, and plug two anchors in with that internal brace. And it's I mean, it's dang near as good as, I mean, you know, so I'm much more willing to be aggressive about reconstructing these now because of some advancements in the anchor technology. So, um, and, and, and they don't rehab much different than the original repair. I mean, maybe a little slower, but not much. And they do pretty well. With, and they do. With, with like with your football player that comes in to, yeah. that's back in playing two weeks, well, beca- three weeks. Right. Because, off. because, you know, you have that internal support. Similarly, when you fix distal radius fractures and you've got a plate in there to hold it, you can allow them to move it much sooner than you would ordinarily, you know? Um, so we used to, when we used to repair these with not as great techniques, then we're casting them and we're holding them back. And the longer you cast them, then the more stiff they become and the, you know, the less, you know, less great they do at the end of the day. Now, I think in general, with so many things we're learning, oh, we can probably be a little bit faster about how we move them. And the earlier we get them moving, then the earlier they get better I always say a stiff hand is always a painful hand you know it just doesn't work well so the sooner you can get things moving after injury or surgery I think the better so um when it comes to the I guess when it comes to the UCL injuries I personally when I've seen when I've seen a lot of them and I I have seen a lot of them with flexible writing and, and, and stuff like that but like for me it's when the when there's a total tear mm-hmm. full tear yeah, I mean it's a barn door it's like yeah oh, it's not subtle it's one of those things that as I've seen that and I think the first time I really noticed it was when I saw it under a fluoro mm-hmm. one of our one of a physician that I was working with um did, did it under a fluoro and it was like 
Oh, wow. You can see how far out it gets. Correct. Mm -hmm. And now as a practicing athletic trainer that sees him on the, uh, on the field or at the rodeo or wherever it's barn door. Okay. We know what you need to do. Yeah. So is that kind of the recommendation that you would say every one of those let's let's do imaging to do yeah, the i would i'd get an mri if you have a barn door it's opening wide i would get an mri i mean you probably could just assume that that's a complete tear and bypass the mri if that were you know and and you can you, just, you can do it under fluoro i i think that i like to know but that's where you see that yeah. those, those lesions those that, that, that you'll catch the center lesion yeah. or just the ligament will be totally displaced um you know every once in a while it'll be completely torn but still right where it belongs so those i can offer non-operative treatment i may not i may tell them i don't know that it's quite as predictable in my own hands you know but um but you know if it's completely and you don't really know that without the mri the mri is really going to tell you um you know if it's completely torn, which you probably already have a suspicion of it, but like how displaced is the ligament? Because that can, that'll change whether or not I'll offer them surgery Absolutely. or not. Absolutely. Or offer them splinting or not rather. So let's move to, I guess something that I, I know I see a lot again, the TFCC stuff. Yeah. Um, TFCC getting just beat on uh, your evaluation on the TFCC, which I, I think is with like your, you're mashing into it to try to actually, it's, it's like a meniscus. It's, it's mm -hmm. like very it's, similar. That's how I describe it to patients is it's like a teeny little meniscus in your wrist. Exactly. And watching your evaluation of it, it's, it's like a McMurray's test yes. on a knee. Very similar. It's the mm -hmm. same thing, but we're, we're trying to provocate or create pain or create whatever. So talk, talk me through that a little bit. I think the TSCC is hard. I, I talk about it, and I did a whole thing on ulnar-sided wrist pain. And I'll tell you that ulnar-sided wrist pain is like the low back pain of hand surgery. It is very hard to tease out. And and just so that, like, you know, you feel better as a trainer. Like, it takes me sometimes several visits with a patient sometimes to figure out what the heck is going on. Like, is it TSCC? Is it ECU? Could is it be a little bit of everything? It can be a little bit of everything. I mean, shoot, ECU. Part of it is part of the TSCC. So the two, I mean, it's very hard sometimes to work out pain on this side of the wrist. Then all of my guys have an ulnar styloid fracture as oh, well. Oh, yeah, and then it's so like the non-union, the symptom the, generator. Yeah. Um, or, gosh, is it ulnar nerve that's causing pain in the ulnar because wrist? Because they have hyper, elbow hyperextension. Yeah, yeah so absolutely. It's so very, it's very hard. So you can't, I mean, I don't think that those are ones that sometimes you can even work out. I mean, sometimes they're obvious, but I think more often than not, they're, they're a little bit, you know, squirrely and a little hard to figure out and take probably a few, a few rounds at it or a few exams at it to know. So, um, you know, and, and this is when I'm, I got, I have some family medicine residents that are rotating with me now in clinic. And I try to talk to them when you're talking about wrist pain, first of all, drawing a line down the center of the wrist and saying, is it more on the thumb side of your wrist or the pinky side of the wrist is a great way to start because your differential is very different on each side. So now we're talking about pinky sided wrist pain. And um, remember, you know, the TFCC is important both in the sort of ulnocarpal wrist, and that's where, you, you know, ulnar deviation or just wrist flexion and extension can be painful for them, and then also your DRUJ, so your swivel joint, your palm up, palm down. So you have to look for problems in both areas. Um, you know, the DRUJ, first of all, for TFCC, they'll be tender kind of in that soft spot, so you kind of follow with your thumb. It's easiest to do with the elbow on the table, follow with your thumb up to the end of the ulna and sort of stick your finger right in that soft spot and that fovea. And that's where they'll be typically tender for TSCC. You know, 
ECU will typically be more tender, more dorsal, you know? And I was like, is it more deep or is it more on the top? Is it more after an injury? Is it more after because it started gradually after use? You know, it's also some of the questions that you ask them to help tease it out. Um, more when you rotate, you know, um, and then, uh, and then, yes. So when you're, you're compressing the TFCC, you're bringing the wrist into ulnar deviation and kind of some extension. You're asking, is that the pain? You know, is that, is that what's causing you, uh, you know, discomfort? And then you always have to link an assessment of their DRUJ stability with the exam of the TFCC because the, the, uh, the treatment is very different depending on that. So, and again, it's about comparing it to the other side, you know, I mean, and the same thing with any instability exam is, you know, you, you assess it on the normal side and you go to the abnormal side. And sometimes I'll go back and forth and you're, you know, I like the piano key test, you know, to kind of shuck the distal ulna on the radius in a couple of different positions or just pushing down on that distal ulna and seeing okay, how much does that move? And then how much does it move on the other side? There's a huge range of normal for that. Um, and so, but the TSCC, you know, again, I, I mentioned in the talk, like just because it's torn doesn't mean it need a surgery, but if there's DRUJ problems with it, it may. So I think that that sort of is, are the, are the points about the TFCC in a nutshell is that again, if you got an MRI of everybody out there, a lot of them would have a TFCC abnormality because you've had any kind of, if you were an athlete or if you had any kind of trauma to their wrist, you can definitely traumatize the, the, the TFCC, but it doesn't necessarily need anything done about it. Um, so I think if you're looking at uh, TFCC injuries in the setting of a stable DRUJ, which is going to be the vast majority of them, it's kind of just about giving it time, giving it time if you can. So splinting, anti-inflammatories, and it's probably minimum six to eight weeks before they will feel reasonable. It's like with that, it's like with a knee, I guess we think of it easier as a knee is it's like with a deficit ACL, PCL deficient knee, one of the two, not saying both obviously, but um, where you're going to have laxity in there, the same thing. You're going to have laxity in there, and now you're going to irritate your meniscus a little bit more in your knee. Same thing with your TFCC, correct? It's, it's kind sort of, a, of. A, a slight comparison. Yeah, of- it is. I think the difference is that the d- potentially, whereas a torn meniscus can certainly go on traumatically, and and there there definitely are some parallels. Continued irritation sure. and yes, yeah, so the torn meniscus can go along with an ACL tear, but a torn meniscus is not going to create necessarily knee instability, whereas TFCC tears can create wrist instability. So that's where we have to tease those out. If the wrist, if the DRUJ is unstable, that's where we may need to at least look for, is MRI going to show a peripheral tear, a tear that's repairable? Um, That's probably worth noting. I think the vast majority of TFCC problems are little central perforations. So just a little hole in the middle of it. It's annoying. If you just give it enough time, it'll go away. Awesome. Well, I think we have gotten to a point where Jeremy's standing outside and <laughs> probably <enough. laughs> angry at me that we've gone so long. So, um, Dr. Tunis, I, we greatly appreciate everything. Um, My pleasure. This has been the Sports Medicine Broadcast. Um, check us out at sportsmedicinebroadcast.com backslash care for the active wrist.